Life is complex, so is our mental health. It cannot be understood by diagnosis alone. Our philosophy is treat the person, not the mental illness. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Humanizing Mental Health. I am Trent Nakers. And I'm Jeremy Alcorn. Yeah. What are we talking about today, Jeremy? Yeah, so there's uh, something that came up with one of the doctors that I work with at the military base, and he was talking about understanding motivation. Mm. And I think that there's a couple of pieces to this. Mm-hmm. Like one of them is about that human aspect of motivation in general. And the other aspect I think is about motivation as it relates to someone being ready to make changes in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, like when you brought that up, I mean, first things that pops into my mind is, of course, the trans theoretical model of change. Yeah. For you know, sure. like, like where they are. And, and I'm sure that we've mentioned that on the show. Um, but the thing uh, for those of our listeners that may need a bit of a refresher or that are just tuning in, the trans theoretical model of change is basically uh, pre contemplation, contemplation action and then uh, maintenance yeah in fact to give some some background on that um well i was working at the calgary counseling center Mm -hmm. and uh, and i also trained there as part of my clinical training and this is one of the things that they gave us specific training on because they they used it in in their their process in a very specific way Mm. so um individuals that were coming in to the Calgary Counseling Center when they first came in would fill out a form. It's called the Eureka. It's an acronym. I don't remember what it mm. stands for, but, uh, but it measures readiness for change. Interesting. Yeah. And so what we would do is we would take the, the score. We would actually plot the score and it would come up with a profile and that profile would tell us where they were at. If they were in a uh, pre-contemplative pre-contemplation where they they don't see that they have a problem Um, if they were in contemplation where they could consider the problem but they were not actually making active changes if they were in the preparation stage uh, or if they were in action Mm -hmm. and uh, and it allowed us to meet them where they're at which is very useful because Mm -hmm. we used it very specifically with the groups that were for domestic violence for individuals that were charged with domestic violence we would not allow them to move into group until they had moved into contemplation. Yeah, no, I mean, um, that, that that would definitely be really key because, I mean, if, if they don't even see that there's a problem, then I could definitely see how that would derail the group process. Yeah, for sure. And so um, to back up a little bit more, where does this come from? So Prochaska and De Clemente, and I don't even know if I said... Those I, names, right? I, I apologize uh, to them out there in the world if yeah, I got their names wrong. No, I, I think you did. <laughs> so they they did a meta-analysis. Uh, clearly, you're aware of this trend, but for our listeners, they did a, a meta-analysis. In, o- in other words, what they did is they took data from lots of other research that was already com- completed, um, and they did this analysis over 40 years' worth of outcome studies, and they were looking for what is it that works in therapy, And their conclusions were, hmm, well, whether you're doing 
some kind of cognitive behavioral therapy or a solution-focused therapy or so forth. They seemed to work about as well, each one of them. And so they went, huh, if that's not the factor that is really the most significant factor in predicting change, then what is? And they then came to the conclusion around readiness for change and and about someone's internal, well, their motivation to change. Yeah, yeah. and you know when you bring that up, um, like I, I almost think about external and internal locus of control when mm-hmm. it comes to that, especially because I don't know if you've uh, how often you've had this, but I've had this sometimes too, where people will come in and will be like, "Oh, my mother wanted me to yeah. come, my brother wanted me to come, my, yeah. you know, my significant other," and I mean, well, that is, uh, you know, a reason for change. I mean, they may not be in, even like even in um, the pre-contemplation stage. I mean, they just may be checking a box. Yeah, for sure. In fact, I, I entirely want to revisit that. I think that is is a big part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the things that Prochaska and Di Clemente did is they, they reorganized or um, the idea of what is change. And, and people would think, you know, when, when has someone changed? Well, they only see action as change. They only see when someone has stopped smoking and they have an extended period of time when they're no longer smoking, they've stopped drinking or they've, there's this this significant shift. And the number of times that I've heard someone say, well, you know what? I tried to quit smoking a bunch of times and then... One time I was just driving my semi-truck down the highway and I just reached into my pocket, grabbed out the pack of smokes, threw it out the window and never went back. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, uh, you know it's really interesting because like when you talk about that, I, I almost think about the iceberg theory there. People only see the tip. They yeah, only exactly. See that, but it's not about everything else that's going on or, or even too like, like let's go back. And like, let's look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like, let's go from the biopsychosocial perspective. And like, okay, what was everything going on in this system that either supported them or encouraged their change? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Well, and, and and I think a really big piece of it is they think that they changed in that moment. And that is not true. They did not grab their smokes, throw it out the window, and change in that moment. No. They spent all these years trying. Mm-hmm. And and actually what they were doing is that they were moving through those stages of change. They just didn't have a sense of awareness of it. The 10 years before that they had been trying to quit smoking, every one of those 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 times they were trying was building towards the one in which it became successful in the end. Right, yeah. Like, I mean, to use an analogy, we would almost call that like a dress rehearsal. Or if we were to really look at that from a neurobiological sense, like they were building up those neural connections and finally everything inside of them and within their environment just met to a point where, you know, now this can finally take place. That's why um, uh, my mother is actually (laughs) a smoker. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my father is always on her, oh, quit smoking, quit smoking. And, you know, and, and, and I've, I've looked at him and I, cause he will all say, he will all say, Oh, she's pounding more nails into her coffin. And, and you know, and, and I look at her, I look at him and I said, well, pop, I said, if, if you would actually stop stressing her out and giving her the hammer, then maybe she would stop 
pounding so many nails into her coffin. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And so, so people then have this, um, from the outside, sorry, start that again. From the outside, people only see the, the moment of change mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and individuals that are going through the process often don't even see, they just see a failure and a failure and a failure and a failure mm-hmm. rather than understanding actually that they um, are building in their motivational process towards change. Or, or, yeah, yeah. Or I even like the fact that, for example, people that are drinking, right, you know, like they, they feel like they need to go into rehab in order to get that successful change. But some of them, too, in preparation for rehab, will even start cutting down the drinking yeah, themselves. for sure. So we have to look at those internal resources and the work that they've done and honor that. Yes, yes, exactly. It's about honoring the process mm-hmm. and about uh, from the individual that's looking at change about understanding how they can build into that next step, how they can make the the next step more overt and less covert. Mm-hmm. And, and this comes back to the notion of motivation. So when uh, the trans-theoretical model of change that we described that was developed by Prochaska and Di Clemente uh, from their research, um, the, the intervention process that was con- then connected to it is called motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it, it is about then identifying where someone is at in their their state of change, meeting them there and going, what is it that we do to help facilitate them to that next step? So someone that is pre-contemplative, they go, I don't I don't have a problem. Then the the step that the the helper would be connecting with would be doing a cost benefit analysis would be. What is this costing in your life and how is it benefiting you? Because if it wasn't benefiting you, you wouldn't continue to use it. Mm. Um, Whatever that is, if it's a behavior, if it is uh, an emotion state, if it is a substance. And, and, And then from there, as they move into contemplation and you see them moving into contemplation, then you're you're working with that position in which they start to see the costs, but you're not rushing them into okay. Now we're going to do these all these specific strategies. We're going to do the because if you do, you'll still mismatch them, and mm-hmm. they won't progress. So it doesn't fully answer my colleague's question, but this is some of the the material because there's a another piece of this. At least I think there is. And it's what you mentioned earlier that I, I tagged, I want to come back to. Mm-hmm. That is, um, what motivation, not just around readiness for change, but what is it pragmatically that motivates someone to enter therapy? Mm-hmm. Or what is it that motivates them in not just therapy, but other aspects of their life? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and it's, I think that that's such a, a key part because I, I think there again, too, that also comes down to agency, how much agency they feel in their life, whether they're just reacting to their environment or whether they feel like they're really driving the bus. And I, like I said, I've had so many clients that come in and they feel like they're doing this for somebody else or for right. their family. Sure. And, but, but okay, like what benefit is that for you? Because you can do that for other people, but then you're not going to be as invested because the minute that that um, is no longer around, no longer relevant, or like let's say, you know, oh, my mother wanted me to be here. Well, 
then you, basically they're a mandated client. Yeah. And you almost mm-hmm. have to say to you to them, okay, to create that um, sense of um, of agency, it's like, okay, like let's flip the script here. Let's say, okay, your mother wants you to be here. But what do we need to do to make sure that you don't that you don't need to come back anymore? Yeah, 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 for sure. Like, like, what is it that your mother would see that would be different that would say to your mother that you've accomplished what you need to do here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, because it starts to then open them up to looking at that other person's perspective mm-hmm. and uh, and maybe even seeing the problems. Because maybe someone else can see the problems and maybe they can't. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, or there again too. Um, and I was, um, I was even reviewing some videos last night where it's looking at um, therapy from a family systems perspective, specifically. Like it was looking at couples and it was looking at kids. And basically, the idea is that um, in order to really understand, specifically for children, you can't just see the child because I mean, like. Uh, you you have to see how they're reacting to the family system and then what's the motivation behind there and then even talking to the mother because it may even be um forgive me if i'm rambling here um like the mother may be seeing the child as the problem but okay what else is in the system that really needs to change yeah for sure like it comes down to what what is the the problem definition? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, and who is it that's defining the problem? Is it the person that's in front of me that is coming with this internal um, motivation that they I, I, are defining a problem in a specific way? Is it the court system that mm-hmm. is identifying the problem? Is it a parent? Is it a spouse? And knowing that those stakeholders actually are a big part of the motivation that someone would be seeing you. There was a, a time that I, I had someone that was mandated by court because of, uh, of charges that had happened. And they, they came in and they didn't know that there was going to be any fee for service. It was based on a sliding scale. So it was like six or $8 or something per appointment. And the, the person said, well, I'm not going to pay anything. I said, that's okay. Just let your probation officer know that you're not coming back. And then just sat. Because um, the, that position around power, that wasn't going to happen. Mm. That uh, I'm not going to like somehow force them or so forth. That won't work. Um, it's not me that, that is going to, to do that as it would. I need to be able to be lined up. And uh, so then the, the person went, yeah, okay. I'll I'll pay the the eight dollars. Yeah, and the thing is, on one level, I mean, if you look at that from the outside, I mean, that could almost be viewed as very punitive. Where it's like, okay, we'll tell your probation officer, and then mm. you're going to interact with the system. But it's mm-hmm. like, well, okay, well, I'm not going to be that individual that's going to tell you. No, I'm going to be here to support you for sure. And uh, and if eight dollars is going to be enough, that. Uh, you're not going to engage, then that's not something that I can do anything about because it means that no no amount of anything else we're going to do is going to make any difference. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't even matter if you give him you know, two cents worth of advice because it's about how is he going to spend that advice for himself. For sure. And so clearly for this person, the motivation was, I don't want to go to jail. Mm-hmm. Then, And hopefully over time, then that develops into something else. Yeah. It develops into a more um, connected place in which they see the benefits for themselves. Yeah. And, and I mean, right there too. Um, like that's where, like the minute I hear, okay, I don't, I don't want to go to jail. Well, and then I also hear like, okay, what do we need to do to keep you out of jail? Or even like, what are, what are the factors that maybe will be putting you back in jail? For sure. In fact, I'm going to pose to you the, uh, the kind of, statement slash question that the doctor was posing to me Mm. um so there's individuals that get in uh, say a house fire or they're in like a an apartment fire and they'll actually just give up Mm. and and they they won't actually do anything to try to to save themselves they'll They'll see it as not possible or whatever, and they'll, they'll just give up and they'll die. Mm-hmm. And and that was the question you posed is, wh- how does that happen? Like, how how is someone motivated and someone else is just not motivated even to save their life? So, I mean, as soon as I hear about that, I can't help but think of Spiegelman's learned helplessness. Like, where I'm wondering for me or for them... Like if they have just been in envir- in environments over the years where they've learned that whenever they go up against a system or wherever they fight for freedom, that they're constantly going to get shocked or going to get put down and where they've basically learned that um, like where it's the dorsal part of the vagus nerve system that becomes stronger. So it is the, the tonic immobility because... Why would I bother expending that um, that level of um, effort? Because it's not, not going to work out. Yeah, it's not going to be rewarded. Mm, that's that's fascinating. Like I, I think about my own life, and I think about how I spent my energy. I'm 46 years old, and about what motivated me towards that. I thought you were 42. <laughs> no. no, 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 no. That was Elvis. Elvis was 42 when he died. I said, I need to lay off the peanut butter. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sorry, folks. That's a conversation off, off mic. <laughs> yeah. But. So um, I look at my life and I think about uh, my, my own history and never went without, you know, food, shelter, clothing. Um, at the same time, my, my experience was one in which my family moved around a lot. Like mm-hmm. I, my memory actually even is attached to, I remember when something happened by where I lived at the time. Interesting. <laughs> so, so in, in the last, whatever it's been since 2007, since I lived in medicine, Hat, people ask me something. I was like, I don't know when that happened. I've, only, I've lived in medicine Hat the whole time. So I don't know when that happened, but, um, but my, my point is that we moved around a lot and in part because my my dad, uh, who was a really hard worker, but he always kind of saw that there was something better, something better, something better, something better, and it, grass it, was always greener. And, and it actually really interrupted the stability of uh, an an economic stability does not work well when you're hopping around all the time, and uh, and so it meant that 
um, I, I felt like uh, financial insecurity, that pressure, mm. you know, and, and growing up in the 80s in the very long um, recession with all of the, uh, the, the Reaganomics and Thatcherism that was happening at the time, um, this, the idea of the future was really scary that I'm going to be able to have enough money that I'm, it's going to be my responsibility to provide. And I didn't believe that was going to be possible. Yeah. And so then what did I do? Mm. I spent most of my time and energy. It motivated me to make sure that that was taken care of. Yeah. And like when you, when you say that, it almost makes me think of like people within the family system. You either align with the family system of like, okay, like let's say your father or mother was a bit of a bully. You either become a bully or you go in the exact opposite direction. Right, yeah, like uh, the, the notion of rebel um, uh, versus imitate for sure. And, and, and so when we look at that in terms of, of motivation, is my life experience just motivated me. The, the meaning I made out of it internalized then motivated me towards that end and um there's there's costs i think with every single thing that we do Mm -hmm. with that Mm -hmm. um but really the the big picture here is recognizing motivation so like even in your own life you have a master's degree um you worked very hard for that um not that everybody works hard for that um, but but at the same time, there are specific things in your life that are different than other. I'm wondering about your motivation, Trent, and what what motivated you in your life. Hmm. And I know I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> no, no, actually, you know what? It's I don't. I know, if 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 this is a weird tangent, you could like. I'll, I'll come back and because it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because it brings up something else that I um, I had um, come up for me you know, actually yesterday um, and let me explain so my parents were on me to go with their accountant I'm like they wanted me me with me with our accountant their our accountant's great our accountant's wonderful and so I'm like okay well you know as a good son you go you meet you meet with the accountant you see what they're like cuz you want to please them and I mean this lady lovely lady I'm like she's very knowledgeable does a great job um but the thing is is and and not that this isn't valid but she only like her specialty predominantly is working is providing services for people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And I, um, you know, and initially I was, I, you know, I thought, okay, well, I'll take her on because she knows this. But then the thing is for me is that um, do, and this is going back to just sort of that motivation words, do I want to be defined solely by my disability. There sounds like a pretty important motivator there. Yeah, and you know, and like the thing is is that um and even like looking back on my disability, like how my family framed my disability where it's not something that who I, it's a part of my identity and it is my primary status, but um but it's only a part of who I am and I kind of accommodated I don't want it to be 
solely how I'm seen and understood. As you and I have both talked about, like when, when I frame my story, I don't want to be seen as the quote-unquote super cripple, the individual that overcomes odds. And so for me, whenever I've looked at doing challenges and going um, to take on things like a master's degree or like living on my own, yes, it is far more challenging for me. And, you know, it would be very easy to just give in to my primary status and, you know, not have gone on to post-secondary or not have lived on my own and lived in a care facility or in a group home. But that is not the life that I want because I am motivated by this ability to forge my own path. Yeah, and yet a lot of people would simply just acquiesce. Yeah, give in. This is just how it is. There's no way I'm going to do anything else. And it's fascinating to hear me to hear you say that to me because you have overcome a whole bunch of challenges. You know, like that's just simply true. The that it 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 isn't like like that's simply true. But you know, like to quote Yoda, do or do not, there is no try. <laughs> yeah. Like, sure. you know, I just like, you know, people like, and, and, and here's the thing. I appreciate that you see the fact that I've overcome all of these challenges. Um, I'm, I'm grateful that you take from that. I'm grateful that other people find uh, inspiration in that. For me, this is just what I do because I, there, there, there is no other option. There's just get up and keep moving. Sure. And you're speaking about something that maybe is, it's just so untangible because you are speaking about motivation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, cause the thing is, is that I, I could, I could choose to give in. I, I could cho- like, I, you know, like, like there, there are days where I, where I question where I'm like, Oh, like, for example, sometimes, like, even this morning, and, you know, like, I'm getting up this morning, like, I've had a good sleep. I usually don't sleep very well. Um, and, you know, I'm like, I would just kill to be able to just get out of bed, make my own cup of coffee, and just have a moment by myself and not have my caregiver. Caregiver, wonderful person, but, you know, I don't I don't ever literally spend a day by myself. And I could take that moment and wallow in that and look at what I don't have you know, which I honor, but at the same time too, I also recognize what I do have. And rather than looking at what I can't control, I look at what I can control. Yeah. And I think coming back to this, I think the the doctor is like, how do we somehow capture this? So, and I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm like, I think having the conversation, I think talking about it is important for people to to reflect on where they are themselves, to reflect on how motivation works in their life, to reflect on possibilities maybe that they haven't considered rather than accepting accepting that I have an addiction and and I'll just just like giving into it or going there's no possibilities that I can have anything else. But um, they also have to make the choice. They have to want to make the choice. I, I like the 
the line from choice there. You either make the choice or the choice makes you. Like you can have the motive. Like you can, we can want people to have the motivation, but we can't spur that within them. They have to want to choose that. Yeah, and isn't that interesting? Because that, isn't that not what motivational interviewing is? Is spurring the 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 choice within them? Like, isn't that what it what it what it's supposed to do? Yeah, but I but there also has to be something within the individual on some level, uh, you know, like Freud talked about a spark of life and a spark of death, or a fire of life and a fire of death. There has to be that spark there already, because if there's not, it doesn't matter how good, how honest, how earnest we are. So I I got a question for you then. Does that mean for the people out there in the world? that feel like I don't have that spark. Does that mean, sorry, you're done. You're never going anywhere. Okay, but here, here's what I would argue too. The fact that you're saying, mm, I don't have that spark means that mm, maybe I'm considering that I might, but it's not quite strong enough yet. The fact that you're questioning and that you're wondering says that there might be something there. Sure, yeah. Yeah. What about for the other people, the loved ones, the people that care about somebody that is just circling the drain in their processes and their decisions? Um, like, what what about for those people that go, this person in my life, they don't have the spark. Does that mean that they're just doomed? See, I don't know. Like, I just... I think at that point, I think they need to work on themselves. And I think it's also about, you know, saying, what do you want? What do you need? What is your motivation? What supports do you need in your life? And also, how can I support the person and respect their choice so that that if and when that spark does come up, that that it's something that comes from them yeah because i've seen some pretty massive turnarounds uh in in my life from individuals that seemed like they would just never make a shift and uh and then all of us seems like all of a sudden right yeah like I'll... like it, it's like they 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 make this foundational change mm-hmm. um and 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 i guess it goes back to they they were actually attempting to try to figure out their life the whole time um, yeah. that yeah. they were moving through those stages of change. Yeah, and I and I think, too, it kind of echoes back to, um, you know, like you said, patience, and also to making sure that you're setting up the environment for that. It's like building a fire. You know, you want to make sure that the kindling and everything is there so when that uh, spark does hit, that it can catch. Yeah, in fact... Um, it reminds me of uh, a specific individual, um, or actually not individual, a specific um, experience in the Calgary Counseling Center, coming back to the uh, notion of the mandated people, that they had it set up in a way that the therapist worked with the individual until they moved to contemplation. And then when people entered into a group, they were actually being held accountable by other members of their group, um, not just the therapist or the co-facilitators. And so maybe there are some, some ways that this can happen 
that actually do honor the person's agency while mm-hmm. also helping to from the outside because if it's not coming from the inside then sometimes maybe some influence from the outside can create the spark that happens on the inside yeah i know and, and I, I think you're right i think encouraging but just recognizing like when like I almost think about the idea like where, where you can encourage, but if, if you're doing, like as a therapist, we talk about it, if we're doing more work than the client actually is, then... Uh, they're then not going to change. Exactly. They're not going to yeah. move forward. Yet. Yeah, and I, and I think sometimes, I think even as therapists, we can almost feel like we're hitting our head against the wall, you know, with certain people. Sure. But, you know, you have to ask yourself, mm, you know, if I keep doing this, what... As my mother would say, little seeds in my planting yeah. that will eventually take root. True, true. And I did actually see in that program some massive changes from some people mm-hmm. and a few that didn't shift at all. So, yeah. But you know what? They may not have shifted at that point, but who knows? Yeah, you know. it, was, it, was, it was like 12 weeks. So it's not to say they never shifted again in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe they only moved from contemplation to preparation and they never got into action. And so for me to say that they didn't shift at all, maybe that actually represents the same thing that everybody else is seeing is that they're not, they're not working at this. And maybe that's actually not right. Maybe they are working at it. They just haven't got as far along as I think they should have. Yeah, yeah. Like, and there again, too, I mean, we're circling back to, um, you know, um, people's definition for change. Is it coming up from the outside or is it coming from the inside? Yeah. In fact, on that note, it's probably a great place to wrap up. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think that this is one of those fundamental things that we would like somehow to be able to create somehow to be able to foundationally move someone so that they would be willing to better their, their life and, uh, and to have this conversation and recognize that it's multifaceted and that it's really important that people reflect on themselves, understand where their motivations come from, where their, their barriers come from in which they're not willing Mm -hmm. to look at things or to try. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I'll say sometimes we want life to be a movie where it's done in 20 minutes or uh, two hours or an 80s montage where you just quickly go through things and you're back on track. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah. Like where, where Rocky gets into shape in the last 20 minutes and he's able to go out and yeah. beat Clubber Lang. Getting strong now. <laughs> yeah. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, that montage, well, it may capture the spirit of what happens. Like, you know, real, true, sustainable change is not just gone through overnight, but really it's like building a brick wall, one brick at a time. And if you want real sustainable change, you got to put those bricks down in place. And rather than looking at the wall, like Will Smith said in his book, um, you know, focus on one brick at a time. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, I'm Jeremy Alcorn. I'm Trent Nakers. See you next time. 
Thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message has been as meaningful to you as it has been to us. If you're looking for help, you can find us on Facebook at Humanizing Mental Health.